turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll be beginning in verse 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. As you turn there, I just want to let you know, we'll be finishing 1 Thessalonians in March, and then we'll be finishing 2 Thessalonians in the end of June. So we have... If you're wondering where we're going next, that's what we're doing. We're doing 1 Thessalonians. We're getting to the end of this book. Then we're going to go right on into 2 Thessalonians. And then at the end of June, we'll pick up uh, in an Old Testament book, which I will, I will hold back on my excitement about that. But the, uh, we'll pick up there, and um, that'll be great. But I just wanted to let you know that's where we are. That's where we're going, um, so that you have it in your mind of what we're studying the next uh, several months. But first Thessalonians four, verses nine through twelve. Let's read together. Verse nine. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, we've talked here about, uh, in chapter four, he's, he's begun to talk about how we live. And he said, finally, remember that at the beginning of chapter four, finally, and then he goes two more chapters should make you feel very happy because your pastor doesn't always go two chapters after he says, finally, this is finally. And then he gives you two chapters worth of things. And so what does he cover here in the finally? First, he talks about personal holiness and communal holiness. That's the first thing he addresses. He says, sanctify, be sanctified, pursue being holy. And he talks about what we talked about last week, sexual purity, uh, personal self-control, not in passions of lust like the Gentiles, and, and that you would be in control of your transgressions to one another, that you would not, that you would not offend each other. Right? And this is, he's leading into the next section when he says that, that you would not uh, disregard one another. And then he says, by disregarding one another in impurity, by being impure, you are offending not man, but God. That there is someone you are offending and that someone is God and that is a dangerous place to be in. And so he's spoken about that and now he's going to talk about brotherly love. And then after he talks about love here, he's going to talk about death and he's going to talk about the end times. And these are things that Paul wants to put before you as finally. So these are concluding remarks. If you were to end a letter with somebody and you wanted them to grab hold of something, if you were to end a letter to a church like ours, because remember Thessalonica, not much different. It's a, it's a church of people who want to be relatively left alone. That's who they are. And they just, they want it like they're, they, we relate, like they're Texan, like they want to be left alone to govern themselves. Please just don't make waves. Leave us be. We'll take care of things. We want to worship the Lord. We want to love our neighbors. We want you out of our business room. And so 
we see that this is a church that we can relate to. And what does he, what does he say here in the finally? The final things that he says for us and for this church are holiness, love, death, and the end times. That's what he covers. So he addresses these things. And as he addresses them, he starts right off the bat with holiness and then comes to the second one. And he says, now concerning brotherly love. This is the word phileo in Greek, uh, meaning familial love. That's why we translate it brotherly love. But it's, it's not just familial, it's affectionate. Uh, phileo is the type of love that you would say to somebody that you like, you know, that you enjoy. I phileo you. That means I, I really care about you. I really like you. It's the same love that's used when you were greeting somebody as, a, as if you had missed them and you grabbed hold and you brought them in close and you squeezed them tight. That's phileo love. That's phileo love. You've got that kind of love, that, that deep, affectionate, familial love often expressed in some sort of outpouring. It's the same love when you haven't been around somebody for a long time and you see them for the first time and you know the, the tears that just kind of show up and you're like, I'm not crying, you're crying. You know, that kind of love where you have missed somebody and you see them for the first time and your heart is just overwhelmed and you want to hug them and kiss them and lift them up off the ground and say, you're so excited. That's phileo love. And he says, now concerning this kind of love, you don't need anybody to write you. What a great compliment for anyone. Concerning brotherly love, you don't need anybody to tell you anything. It's expressed in this familial outpouring. This is the same kind of love that Christians are to have for one another all the time. This is the love that's talked about in Romans 12.10, in Hebrews 13.1, in 1 Peter 1.22. This is the type of love that you are to have for the brothers, for the saints. Not just the self-sacrificing love that only, that only Christians can know, but the actual love that the world can display. This is phileo love that even the world can display this kind of love. Even wicked people can love their brothers and sisters or their children. It's not special for a wicked person to be loving of somebody who's their family member, right? Even gangs love each other to some degree. They are phileo, right? They can't do agape. That's only Christians can do that. Only Christians can truly be self-sacrificial love that way, but they can do this. This is phileo love. And Paul says here, Christians... You don't have any reason for, like there's no need in the Thessalonians for them to be written of this way. They know. Now this, this love is almost always used in conjunction. If you do a basic search of the scripture in the New Testament, it's almost always used, phileo is almost always used in conjunction with serving others. With some act of service or outpouring towards others. It's a mark of genuine Christianity. This is a mark of genuine Christianity. Now, he says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write this to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Note here where they learned this. They learned this from God. Paul can't take credit for this. 
Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they can't take credit for this. This isn't the type of love that they can take credit for. This is, this is love that was taught by God. You yourselves. The emphasis here, you yourselves, is, the, is, is that Paul and Silas and Timothy can't take credit. They, you did this yourself. Like The Lord did this. You were taught this by God. Now this phrase, taught by God, is only used here in the New Testament. The, this particular construct taught by God is only used here in the New Testament. It sets the Thessalonians apart. Right? It sets them apart from all the others. They're taught this by God. You see, Christians are given the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.5, 5, Ephesians 1.13. Christians are given the Holy Spirit and we are indwelt by Him. And He lives with us and He leads us. Romans 8 and Colossians 3, he leads us, he, he walks with us, he lives inside us, and that outpours from us. So the Holy Spirit is in us, able to teach us. That's what it means in 1 John when he says, you have no need for a teacher, for you have been taught, and you learned from the Holy, you have the Holy Spirit. He's, he's talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit is in you and guides you to do what's right if you listen He's guiding you to do what's right and, and to live holy and to love well. And so we have this, this statement here. You have been taught by God. The Holy Spirit indwells you. You've been taught by God. Just think about that for a minute. Just for a minute. Think about how amazing that is. In every other religion, you're handed a... Uh, set of rules and standards and lists that you have to live up to. And you have to work on it on your own. You have to do it on your own. Some of them are you have to pray five times a day this way. Some of them you have to eat certain things a certain way. Some of them you have to be around certain activities and certain places, certain times of the day. You've got all of these things, all of these lists and rules. And what does it say in Christianity? Just love one another and listen to the Spirit. I mean, what does it say? Love one another, listen to the Spirit, get as close to Jesus as you can. He's going to walk with you. He's going to lead you. He's going to talk with you. He's going to do things with you. He's going to miraculously show up in your life in simple, easy ways. All the other religions have these lists of things you have to keep. It's one of the things that distinguishes true Christianity from false Christianity. True Christianity says keep these, keep these laws because you love Jesus or do this because Jesus has already done it for you and you can now. False Christianity says keep all these rules so that you can be. Whereas Christianity says you are. So pursue Jesus, walk with him. Love him. Be sanctified and holy. Love each other. Love the brothers. The exhortations are myriad in Scripture for you to love one another, for us to love one another. But they are always exhortations based on the truth that Jesus Christ has changed our hearts and enabled us to do so. We are redeemed because Christ has rescued. We are redeemed because Christ has done it. And we love because he has loved us and made us loving. 
So he says to the brothers here, you have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers in Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. This is the second time he's told us to do so more and more. To work more and more towards something that's already been done in you. Remember in chapter 3, this has already been done. You've already been sanctified. Love has already been placed in your heart. You have already done so. Now you are to do so more and more. Now you are to do so more and more. So he says here that you are, this is what you have been doing. There, do this more and more. Now consider how the, how the Thessalonians have specifically done this. And I just want to jump back and forth to a couple passages. Go to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He's talking about the Macedonian believers, and that's the Thessalonians. That's who they are. There's a group of churches in Macedonia, which is a large area. The Thessalonians are of that group. And look at what he says here. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but as they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. This church, these Macedonians, look at that. They, they had poverty, so they're poor people. They don't have a lot, but they have enough. They have means. It says they gave according to their means, and then it says, and I attest, even beyond their means. They gave. So they heard about Christians struggling in another part of the world. This would be the equivalent of you hearing of some church in Minnesota, right? Somewhere far off. They're not famous. It's not a famous church. They don't have a famous pastor. They're not on YouTube. They're They're just a small church in the middle of nowhere, Minnesota, and they hear that this church can't afford to take care of the widows in their church. They can't afford to do some things. They can't afford to love each other well. They've, they can't afford what the church does. It's not a building issue. This is not a church building issue. This is not a, a I want to be clear, this is not a church building issue. This is not a church that wants to start a program and can't afford to start the program. This is a church that can't afford to live. Like their people are starving. And so the church in Macedonia goes, we have food and we have some money, so let's send it out there. And Paul, you can imagine the conversation, guys, you aren't rich. Stop it. You're poor. You're poor. We got rich churches over here. They can do it. They can send it. And the Macedonian believers, the Thessalonians go, no, please, please let us take part in this. Please let us take part in this. Please let us take part in this work, and they send money with Paul 
to take care of the other churches. And if you look, it says it overflowed. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They, and they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They gave above and beyond because they loved the saints. And they earnestly begged for the saints to do it. Their faith, also, we read earlier in the book of 1 Thessalonians, not only do they give in Corinthians, but in 1 Thessalonians, they, they already have been told that their faith has gone forth everywhere ahead of them. People hear about this church. People hear about this church. That their faith has gone forth everywhere, that they are being connected to people that they are loving people they hear about this church in other places now consider the fact that when you became a christian you joined a family consider the fact that when you became a christian you joined a family and when you joined a local church body or when you started becoming part of a local church body you joined a family a couple things about families i always like to remind myself of the one, you don't pick them. You don't pick your family. They just are. They just are family. You don't get to pick your family. That's an abomination in American culture that we think that we can pick our family. You can't. Your family is given to you by God. It is designed for you by God. And you are the one who has your family. If you're a parent, that kid is your kid. It's yours. All the bumps and warts and everything about them. That's your kid. It's your, it's your kids, your responsibility. If you're a church member and you have a family that has children and grandparents and, and they're all, uh, none of you, let's just be clear. None of you, you're all great. Let's just be clear. I'm not talking about anybody specifically. None of you. But if you have a family that's all jacked up on both ends, the top and the bottom, and everything's wild and they're messed up, guess what? That family was given to your church. You don't get to pick. That's your family. My brother in Baltimore is my brother. My sister in Baltimore is my sister. I don't get to pick them. They're who God gave me. All their bumps and bruises and beautiful, beautiful scars are mine to bear with them. All of the troubles they have are mine to bear with them. So consider family. Consider that, and then consider this, that when your family is in trouble, you are troubled for them. When your family is troubled, you are troubled by them. They are these. They are these. They won't go away. They're not going to leave. They're not going to be quiet. They're going to be your family. Family is what we all have. And I want you to hear this. In Christ Jesus, your family is amazing. In Christ Jesus, your family is amazing. The family here at Sovereign Grace, incredible. It's incredible. I don't know why it's incredible, but it is. None of us are all-stars. And yet the most loving people in the world. 
This is my family. All your bumps and warts and bruises and scars and all your beautiful marks that make you who you are. And that's what they are. Don't get me wrong. They're beautiful. All your errors are beautiful. All your flaws are beautiful marks of our Creator on who you are and who you are to be. They are wonderful. And they are a delight. So sometimes you are troubled for your family and sometimes you are troubled by them, but they are still your family. Let brotherly love abound in you. As you have done this, do so more and more. Love one another more and more. Sovereign grace, seek out opportunities to love each other more and more. Seek out opportunities to do this more and more. Now, he says this and then he follows it with three exhortations. I want you to see these. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Look at them. Verse 11. To aspire to live a quiet life, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. I hope you just heard Paul say, mind your business. He did it. He said it. He said it outright. If anybody ever tells you that Scripture never says that, yes, it does. Right here, it literally says, mind your business. That's the Greek. (laughs) Mind your business. Oh, and we'll get to that in a second. But he says to strive to live a peaceful and quiet life. Now, there is a commentator who has said that there are three people that he is talking to here. He's talking to the fanatic. He's talking to the busybody. And he's talking to the loafer. Or the mooch. He's talking to those three. The fanatic, the busybody, and the loafer. Fanatics tend to have to do something all the time. They want things moving. They want things going. And, and they're often very exciting people because they do things. But they have to be doing things. And they have to be out front. And they have to be loud. And if you're not loud, then you're not doing anything. If you're not loud, then you're not doing anything. If you're not fighting against something, then you're not doing, you're not engaging, right? That's, that's a fanatic. And Paul says to that person, strive, wrestle, fight to live a peaceful and quiet life. He looks at the fanatic and he says very plainly, be quiet. Be quiet. Be, live a peaceful life. And quiet life. This is not abnormal. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, what, is he, what does he admonish us of? He says that you should pray for your leaders, pray for the kings, pray for those who are above you, that you would what? Live a peaceful and quiet life. Paul says pray for them that you'd live a peaceful and quiet life. Being loud in this life does not make you a star or holy or right. The loudest person is not always the right one. Does not make you right to be loud. He says, live a peaceful and quiet life. In 1 Timothy, he says, uh, the quiet life in godliness and dignity. Sovereign grace, enjoy, enjoy your obscurity. Enjoy the obscurity that you have. No one is busting down our door. You have time to worship the Lord and love Him. No governing agency is telling you you can't meet now. No no one is trying to destroy the fellowship here. We are in obscurity and it is delightful. 
pray to the Lord that we would have a peaceful and quiet life in the gospel ministry. Oh, that we'd speak boldly to our neighbors and friends and and people, but that we would not be so caught up in the things of this world that we miss the things of God. That we would live a peaceful and quiet life. Strive for a peaceful and quiet life. This word strive here means to have an ambition towards. And it literally means to love honor. It's two words jammed together. Love and honor. To love honor. That's what it means to strive for a peaceful and quiet life. To love and honor a peaceful and quiet life. You ought to take delight when you see someone who is a Christian who is able to live at peace. You ought to honor that. This ought to be something we hold in high esteem. The person who lives a peaceful, quiet life for Jesus is the one that we want to know because they walk with the Lord closely. They walk with Him in peace, love, and honor a peaceful and quiet life. The second one He gives you there is mind your own business. Now you can do this, you can read this two ways, right? One, emphasize mind or take ownership over or take care of your own affairs. Like you can, you can do it that way. You can read it that way where it says, take care of your own affairs. Like you are responsible for your troubles. You take care of them. Take care of your own affairs. Handle your own things. You have problems, handle them. Handle your own affairs. Get, work your own job. Handle your own affairs. Second thing is an address to the busybodies. The second way you can read it, and I'm telling you, you have to read this both ways because they both answer the busybody. The second thing with the busybodies is take care of your own affairs, and then the second one, Mind your own business. That's not your business. Mind your own business. Mind your own business. Like So take care of your own affairs. Do what you must to take care of your own affairs. And then second, mind your business. Oh, I love this question I get from people who are, again, you guys are great. You don't ask these questions. But people outside that I run into in the street, oh, how is so-and-so? How, they, they get the real concern. You know the face? The face where their eyebrows just slightly turn in and they tilt their head. They go, how is so-and-so? Sometimes they'll even put their hands together. How is so-and-so? And they're asking for gossip. I so often want to look at this, this person and go, hey, 1 Thessalonians 4.11. And then just walk off. Mind your own business. It's not your concern. If you want to know how so-and-so is, call them and ask them. Right? This, that's called gossip. If you want to know how somebody in the church is doing, it's perfectly reasonable for you to come to, don't get me wrong, it's per- perfectly reasonable and go, hey, is so-and-so okay? That's fine. Most of the time you're going to have me go at some point. I might tell you something, but at some point I'm going to go, you should call them. You should call them. And that's what I'm going to tell you. Hey, you should call them. And then, then I expect you to do so. Right? Just like if I asked you, hey, how's so-and-so doing? You have every right to look at me and go, well, why don't you call them? Why don't you call them and find out? Mind your own business. Busybodies tend to be people who don't take care of their own problems and instead mind everybody else's and complain about everybody else's problems. Listen, there's, a, there's an unspoken rule here that if you are not willing to get in the dirt with somebody, then you are not allowed to ask. 
It's just an unspoken one, it's, but it's one that we've lived by. It's not, it's just something that's kind of happened. It's happened organically. If you see somebody struggling or somebody who's dealing with sin or something and you're not willing to get in the dirt to help them overcome, don't ask. Make the decision that you're willing to walk with them through trouble before you point out their trouble. So we do that here. And you guys, you guys have done that. It's just, it's not something that we said at the outset. It's not a rule that we have written down anywhere. It's just the way that you guys are. It's the way that we are as a church. If you're not willing to get involved, you don't ask. The great thing about our church is that everybody seems willing to get involved. And how wonderful is that? Everybody seems willing to help. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. So, mind your business is the second, or the second one. We know that he's talking about busybodies, by the way, because of 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 11, where he says, some of you are still uh, lazy and idle and busybodies. He uses the term busybodies. So we know that's who he's addressing. Even in the second letter, they don't get it all fixed. So he's addressed fanatics, live a peaceful and quiet life. Now he's addressed busybodies. And then third, he's going to address lazy people or loafers or people who mooch. He says, work with your own hands as we instructed you. The emphasis here is with your hands. You work with your hands. You take your things and you work. You don't work with somebody else's hands. You work with your hands. Don't get other people to do your job for you. Do the job that you need to do. That's very plain. What he's exhorting them to is that they would not be lazy interlopers who just mooch off everybody, but that they would be people who labor and work. Contribute to the body. That's the positive way to say it. Contribute to the saints. Work and contribute something. In 2 Thessalonians 3.10, he says, if anyone will not work, they should not eat. If anyone will not work, they should not eat. They had a feast like we do every week. They had a feast after church every week. This was the way that the early church worked. It's part of the reason that we do it. The early church was this way. They had a feast every week. So we do the same thing because it's just the model. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive, but we think that it's probably a good idea. So we gather around the table every week to eat together. This is what they were doing. And he says, look, if somebody's not willing to work and contribute to the body, they shouldn't eat. Don't let them eat. Like, Tell them that they get to go last. And if there's any left over, like if you want to be compassionate to them, tell them they can go last. But they need to know that they should contribute to the body. This is a big deal in an inner city church in particular, which is what Thessalonica kind of was. An inner city church filled with people who are poor and broken and are trapped in the city this is a big deal. They get to stop and eat together. And when they eat, they need everybody to contribute. Now, the answer to these maladies is not merely the exhortation here. He gives three exhortations to answer fanatics, busybodies, and lazy people. But he goes on to give more. So I want you to understand that this isn't the end of his dealing with this. He has already spoken about personal holiness and and. Uh, faithful purity as a body, and then he's talking about brotherly love, that you don't dismiss the brothers, and then 
He's going to talk about death, and he's going to talk about uh, eternity. He's going to talk about uh, the coming uh, return of Christ. He's going to talk about all these things. And all of these, I want you to understand, all of those things are an answer to busybodies, to fanatics, and to interlopers and lazy people. He's giving you the answers in this passage. How do you deal with these? Well, this is how you deal with them. And we will look at those deeper next week. But this week, I want you to understand his last statement here in verse 12. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul then looks at them and says, what's the reason for holiness? And what's the reason for brotherly love? The reason for holiness is the pleasure of God. We talked about that two weeks ago. The reason for holiness is the pleasure of God. God is pleased with your holiness. It brings Him joy. It is His will, His desire that you would have it. The reason for loving one another is that you may walk appropriately before outsiders. That when people who are not Christians see you, you're appropriate. You are appropriate. The world, what is it Paul, that Jesus said earlier? And what we read in John 13, the world will know you by your love. The world will know you by your love. Understand when he says that, he's giving the world approval to question you. That by saying they will know you by your love, he's giving a litmus test to the world for you. They will know you by your love. The church grows and develops when people see your love for one another. Love impacts evangelism. The key to evangelism is a diligent pursuit of brotherly love. Diligent and hardworking pursuit of brotherly love. Striving to live a peaceful and quiet life. Minding your own affairs. And working with your hands to love others. A diligent pursuit of brotherly love is the key to successful evangelism. And then he says that you would be dependent on no one. That you would be able to say, look at what God has done, and no one else has done this for me. After all, God is the one who taught them this. God is the one who taught them brotherly love. So love deeply and love well, because you have been loved by Jesus. He has sanctified you and made you holy and rescued you and redeemed you. You have been loved by Him. Therefore, love others. We love deeply each other because we love Him and because He loved us. Father, we pray this morning that You would be delighted in Your people here, that we would love well and love deeply the community of faith. Lord, please speak to us even now as we confess our weakness, as we confess that we need you yet again, remind us that we've always had you, that you have been faithful to redeem and rescue us, that you have saved us and that you've never left us. And we can delight in your presence at all times. Lord, we love you and we trust you in all things. Amen.